Welcome. Whether you're on the roof or here in the Ritz or whether you're joining us online, uh, we are uh, blessed to have you with us today. And I hope uh, that if you did not realize that it was Valentine's Day, husbands, boyfriends, at this point, it's about repentance uh, at this point. But it is, and I want to say happy Valentine's Day. May the love flow today. Uh, We are going to be in a book of the Bible that bears a particular distinction, and that is it's the one book of the Bible where God is never explicitly mentioned. Now, last week we talked about very explicit acts of God, where God shows up in the burning bush and says to Moses, this is my name, Uh, tell him I am sent you, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, and we watch these great thundering acts of God in the plagues. This is a series we're calling Storyline, and it's about how God interacts with people. Esther, which is the book I'm referring to, asks kind of an interesting question. Is God working even when I don't see him? So if he's not being explicit, if he's not showing up in burning bushes or plagues of frogs and gnats, if he's not destroying the earth by flood, uh, if he's not appearing on the mountaintop, how do I know he's there? And what Esther's going to tell us is he's there. Uh, He often works, in fact, on a daily basis in much less explicit ways than what we're used to and what we think about. Uh, And so, as I'm prone to do, let me give you this little phrase, that in the kingdom of God, what we often say is coincidence, is really not coincidence at all. That when you read something in Scripture that is a, appears to be a coincidence, your Bible is winking at you as you read it. It's letting you know, hey, God is actually at work here. God's doing something here. And so the phrase, it just so happened, okay, is one that pops up a lot, particularly in the Old Testament in books of Ruth and Esther, to let us know, wink, hey, and look at the coincidence here, wink, wink. It just so happened that this happened. And so in the kingdom of God, as I'm prone to say, it just so happened, happens a lot. That God works in in ways that are very overt and very powerful and at the same time sometimes uses us to carry out His will here on earth and works in ways that we often don't see right away. But by positioning just the right people in the right places at the right times, God sees His will done here on earth. So today we're going to look at the story of Esther. If you have a Bible or Bible app and want to get it open, go ahead and join us. And we're going to do this like we're watching kind of a Netflix documentary or something. Uh, And I'm going to hold the remote. All right? So we're going to go and we're going to watch it together, but like you're watching something that, and with, with somebody that's maybe new to whatever the subject matter is and you want to help them understand certain things as you go, I'm going to hit pause and we're going to talk for a while, then we're going to hit play and kind of work through it that way, okay? But we're going to get through the whole book. It's not going to take as long as you think. Watch. All right. Here's how the book starts. This is what happened in the time of Ahasuerus. Now, Xerxes is another name. X-E-R-X-E-S. Xerxes. Dr. X, the big X, the most dominant king in the world at the time. And when the book opens, he's doing what all great Persian kings of the time did. He's throwing a massive party, six months long, in honor of himself. I mean, that's Mr. Humble for you, right? Hey, let's have a six-month. Now, he was prone to do this almost every year. Six months of the year was a big bash devoted to himself. Now, this party, when the book opens, is divided up like a junior high dance. you got all the women in one room. They're there uh, celebrating in one particular room by themselves. The guys are over in the other room, and everybody's eating and drinking and getting merry, okay? 
And so at some point during that feast, Xerxes, the king, sends for the queen. Her name is Vashti. And he asked her to come over and essentially entertain the guests. Vashti was not feeling it. Maybe he'd forgotten Valentine's Day. Who knows? But she says, no. Now, the downside of that in the ancient world was, if you said no to the king, usually you died. She's lucky. He just banishes her. So he removes her as queen, sends her away, and so the search for a new queen is on. And so picture it like some sort of like American Idol kind of thing or whatever, where everybody's going to like try to try out for queen. Now, there happens to be, at the time, a man by the name of Mordecai. He's raising a young woman by the name of Esther that he had adopted. So they're kinfolk, they're cousins, but he had kind of adopted Esther into his house and was raising her. Now, here's what the text says about Esther. This is uh, Esther 2.7. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So Mordecai goes, I think Esther's got a shot. Esther, give it a shot. So she goes in, and even the people that are, you know, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen like Miss Congeniality or one of these beauty contest movies, but people who are competing against each other in those deals don't usually like each other very much. They love Esther. Even the people that are alongside her love Esther. They like the way she carries herself. Uh, she appears to be some sort of knockout because the king picks her in the end. But Mordecai, put, when he puts her into the running, says, hey, listen, Esther, it's probably not a very good idea for you uh, to let the king know that you're Jewish. After all, the Persians had just taken over the Jews and dispersed them, sent them into exile. So they do that because uh, he doesn't want an uprising. He doesn't want a coup attempt. So we, what they do in the ancient world was if we come in, we take your, your city over, and then we're going to take your family. We're going to chop you into like three pieces, and you're going to go that way, you're going that way, and you're going, to, you're going to the east, you're going to the north, and you're going to the west. And it was an effort to keep them from being able to unite against the nation or against the king uh, and start a coup. And if you think that he's kind of overdoing it, the first thing that happens is there's a coup attempt on his life. Mordecai finds out about it, sends a note to Esther saying, hey, you might want to <clears throat> let the king know this is going on. She does. Coup attempt thwarted. All right, so the people, though, that are there, they build uh, gallows. We would call them gallows. Um, they, they didn't hang people in the classic way uh, back then. They impaled people. So here's your Valentine's Day sermon full of impaling people on sticks. But that's what they did. So when it says that they hung them, they mean they hung a sharp stick, uh, usually way up in the air about where those light fixtures are, and a stick, and then you'd be put on there, and you'd just sit there until, the, until you were eaten completely. Lovely way to do it. And it's going to happen by the thousands in this book. So when I say hang, I mean that, okay? So they take the people who had launched the coup, they do that to them, now, at this point, something very interesting happens. At that particular point, those people are banished. Now, it's funny, before we get going, when we teach this story over in the children's wing, we, have, we leave that part out. Um, now, when you watch this Veggie Tales, the kids' cartoon, uh, we have a picture of them here. These people that launched the coup are banished to the island of perpetual tickling. I love that. That's exactly right, right? So, if there are kids in here and... They're on the island of perpetual tickling on sticks. So, as we get going, um, okay, the, the coup attempt is, is thwarted, all right? Now, something big happens in chapter 2, verse 23. So this is me pausing the remote real quick. 
the account of that coup attempt being thwarted is written down, it says, in the presence of the king. So there's a book, a big fancy book of things that happen in the presence of the king. And it's written down in there. All right? That's going to become very, very important later. Close that book, put it on the shelf. Okay, here we go. Boop. We're back in business. Now, at the same time, there's an evil man by the name of Haman. He's appointed to be the king's right-hand man, his wingman. But he's an evil guy. And when he passes, he makes everybody bow down to him. So everybody does. Haman's his name, getting you to bow to him. That's his game. And he says, bow to me, bow to me, bow to me, bow to me. And everybody does it, except one guy, Mordecai, the one who raised Esther. He refuses to do it. He knows he's only supposed to bow a knee to God. So he refuses to do it. That really bothers Haman. I don't mean a little bit. It really, 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 really bothers Haman. So he launches a plot to exterminate all Jews because, Haman, or because one guy won't bow down to him. So he says, let's get rid of everybody. He, go, he knows Mordecai is a Jew, so he decides he's going to rid the kingdom of all Jews by convincing the king that they are a threat to him. Now remember, the king's paranoid, just had a coup attempt on his life. He offers 10,000 talents of silver in exchange for anybody who's willing to come and execute this. It's a way of bringing revenue into the kingdom. king was probably broke after fighting as many wars as he had and all the partying. It's expensive to do that six months out of the year. So they do that. He launches the plan. He has a hard time deciding when to do it. So he casts lots. So it's like rolling the dice. Let's see. When should we do it? And... Those things that they cast are called pure, P-U-R, okay? We're hitting the pause button. Pure, P-U-R, that's going to come into play later. It means lot or dice, our equivalent of dice, okay? So he lands on something, decides when he's going to do it, off they go. Now Mordecai gets wind of this, and he tears his clothes, rip, puts on sackcloth and ashes, that's the you know, the decor of mourning. This is what you do when you lose somebody. Then they die, your wife, your child. You're grieving. And he goes out into the town square and he starts wailing. Like crying. Like a, like a newborn baby who had the candy taken away from it except he's in grief. Crying out on behalf of the people. Everybody else kind of starts sympathy crying. They go, what's up with Mordecai? Wait, what? What's going to happen? Wait, What? That's why you're doing this. Okay, they tear their clothes. They put on the mourning gear, and they go out, and they start wailing. Esther gets wind of this and basically says to Mordecai, hey, 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 shh, 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 shh. you're going to get us all killed. She sends him a new pair of clothes. He says, don't need them. I'm good where I am. So he turns them away. So at this point, he's out in the town square. Esther's in the palace still. Mordecai then realizes Esther has become their only hope. If they're going to be rescued, Esther is going to have to go to the king and ask him to recant his plan that Haman had launched and persuaded the king to execute. All right? Now there's a problem here. Unless you're invited by the king to come to him, you don't, you don't like call his secretary and make an appointment and go in. It's not how it works. You decide, hey, I'm going to go in, uh, or I'm going to go in, and he usually, he lifts his scepter or he doesn't. Most of the time, he did not. So he's got about a 10% chance of living. If he doesn't lift it off with your head, you're dead. So even the queen couldn't just go in and talk to the king. It's not how it worked. 
So Esther knows she hasn't been invited, so if she goes in, the chances of her leaving there with her life, I mean, consider what he had done to the other queen. He banished her because she didn't want to come in and entertain the guests. What do you think he's going to do to somebody who walks in where the penalty is death? So she's nervous. So a choice must be made. And if Mordecai can't persuade Esther, the Jews are finished. The promises of God to the Jews throughout the ages hang in the balance. The promise to Abraham, the promises to Moses and the people, the promises to David. All of this is after David. Okay? All of those promises hang in the balance. Here's what it says in Esther 4, 12 to 17. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him to do. He says, Esther, I know you're looking at this going, why me? And he says, it could be that God puts you in that spot for this moment. It just so happened that the queen of Persia at the time happened to be a Jew herself. What are the chances of that? They're astronomical, frankly. It just so happened that Esther was in that spot. He says, Esther, it could be that you were put in that position of influence for this moment right here. He's trying to say, Esther, it just so happened, happens a lot in the kingdom of God. Maybe that's why you're here. In fact, God did have her there for such a time. God wanted a woman after his own heart to play a role in delivering his people. I mean, I think we need to rethink the way that we look at trials, the way we look at battles, the way we look at why things happen in the world. Because we tend to think whenever adversity comes our way, why is this happening to me? Why am I under pressure? How come this is happening to me when in reality God is saying to us, no, 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 that's why I put you there. I didn't put you there so you could sit there and kind of enjoy yourself and kick your feet up and do whatever. I put you where I put you for this moment. For this moment. I didn't give you influence so that you could sit there and just walk around doing whatever. I gave you influence to use on behalf of my people. I gave you influence for a reason. I gave you wealth for a reason. I gave you the family you have for a reason. I gave you the spiritual gifts that I gave you for a reason, for this moment, for this time. And so for many of us, what we do is we kind of look and we go, often we'll take adversity and go, where is God? God's going, where are you? Where are you? I put you in this spot for this moment right here. And if it seems coincidental, that's because in the kingdom of God, it just so happens, happens a lot. 
Sometimes the really difficult things that happen in life are the result of the world not being the way it should, but believers aren't the people that kind of just sit there and let life happen to them because they believe that God ultimately controls what happens in the world and that while we may not want to be where we are, we are actually where God wants us to be. So I may not want to be here, but he wants me to be here. And so my job is to align myself with what he wants. And so I find myself not going, God, how could this happen to me? But God, you put me here. What would you like me to do? What would you have me to do? Because he may put us here for such a time as this. It doesn't take very much to point out problems or feel badly about things that seem unfortunate. But let's ask, was it a bad thing that Esther was in the position that she was in? No. It just so happens it was a really good thing. And so the next time that I wonder, why does this always happen to me, or God, why am I in this situation? The answer might be for such a time as this. Because it might be me the one that was called into this particular battle because God wanted me there. We can let life happen to us, or we can let God happen to life. What if we replaced, why is God allowing this to happen to me with God? What do you want me to do in this battle? What do you want from me in this battle? I mean, could it be that our current situation, whatever it may be, whatever trial you're going through, is not a punishment, it's actually an honor? See, Esther looks at this, and it's not, God is honoring her with this dilemma. Now, Mordecai says something really powerful. He says, listen, if you flop, if you chicken out, God's got to find another way to deliver us. But it could be that he put you here for this time, for this moment to use the influence that he gave you, this miracle of this Jewish orphan girl becoming queen of Persia. It could be that that wasn't a coincidence, Esther. That right now, when the entire fate of your people is on the line, you are number two. You are the queen. So, you're here at this place, this time. Our church is here at this place, this time comprised of the likes of us for such a time. So rather than go, why can't we do this? Why can't we do this? Mope, 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 mope. question is, okay, we're in a battle. What would you have us to do? What would you have us to do, Lord? We're still on pause. Next, Christians know what time it is. He says, for such a time as this. We know what time it is. Esther's made queen for such a time as this one. And so she doesn't say, go, okay, get all the Jews together, and let's get our people together, get all the swords, get all the shields, get all the ammo we've got. You know what she tells them to do? Fast. We're going to fast and pray. Notice the difference between the way the Persians do it. Six months of partying, eating and drinking, everything in sight, withholding nothing from yourself. And when she's in a pinch, she says, let's get together and fast and pray. Let's get together and fast and pray. Going into battle, she seems to know that she needs the full armor of God that is at her disposal. She seems to want to live ready, like a soldier who sleeps with their armor on. She wants to be spiritually ready. We often think that when people fast or pray, they're weak. That doesn't seem to be how she sees it. She seems to see it just like Jesus sees it in the 40 days in the wilderness story when he fights off Satan after 40 days of fasting. That you get stronger, not weaker. 
Because you're more humble. You're more dependent. You're less prone to obey your flesh. You're denying yourself. You're denying your flesh. And as you do, you're becoming much, much stronger. It allows you to hear from the Lord in ways that you can't otherwise. See, it could be that our church will be better equipped for battle if we, like Esther, keep in full view the full armor of God, composed of things like faith and truth and salvation and righteousness. And those things come by by spending time getting ourselves ready before the moment comes. She doesn't go to the king right off the bat. She says, I'm going to take time to get ready. I'm going to be prepared so that when I get into that moment, I'm going to know what God wants me to do, and I'm going to have the fortitude to do it. And the way she does it, I think, is important. Fasting and prayer. Not swords and shields. She doesn't sprint in there. She says, not only that, she asks the common people to join her. She asks everybody to join her. Everybody that's under her care, everybody that Mordecai can get his hands on. Spread it far and wide. We're going to fast and pray. And so she'll be ready and they'll be ready whenever the battle presents itself. But she knows the battle is coming to her in a certain way. Don't be too too proud to ask people to pray for you. Don't be too proud to humble yourself before God and fast. Don't be too proud. Don't think you can do it by yourself because you can't. Even Esther knew that. She's the queen of Persia. You're not. I'm not the queen of Persia either. So, moving on. Story continues. Hit play. So, Esther needs to go to the king. She needs to save the people. So she gets gussied up and takes that nervous walk to the courts of the king. So the king will see her, and then he'll have to make a decision. Live or die. He extends his scepter or he doesn't. If he does, she lives. If he doesn't, she dies. So she finds favor in his eyes. And he extends his gold scepter. In fact, she finds so much favor that he doesn't just say live. He says, Esther, I will give you anything you ask up to half my kingdom. Up to half my kingdom. So here's what Esther says. Now she could say, right now, she could go, you know, you aren't going to believe what Haman's deciding to do. You need to put a stop to it. Nah, 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 nah. Right? Nope. You know what she says? I would be honored if you and Haman would come to a banquet with me tomorrow night. And as we know, the king has no problem with banquets. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah, Haman. Me, you, Esther. Tomorrow night, let's get together. Let's have this. Right? So she finds favor in his eyes. He extends the scepter, and so the king fetches Haman right away, and the feast then will commence. When the feast is over, they're all sipping wine. The king asks Esther what she really wants. He knows, you didn't risk your life, just invite me to dinner. What's the real deal? And then Esther says, my wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, Let the king and Haman come to the feast I will prepare for them tomorrow. He says, we're going to tell you what, let's do this again. And I'll tell you then, after that feast is over. So the king, Haman, sweet. I got nothing else to do. Cancel the plans. We got another feast with Esther. Sounds good to both of them. So they say, let's do it again tomorrow. Now, check this out. Haman 
evil, wicked dude that he is, walks out of the feast. The Bible says he's joyful and glad in heart. That's a euphemism for drunk. He goes out, and he's walking down the street. He's thrilled about what he gets to do. He's so proud. He's almost spraining muscles, patting himself on the back for how much the king and Esther appreciate him. And as he does, he looks over. He passes Mordecai, who's not bowing. Bothers him a lot. Like most people, when they've had a little too much to drink, uh, being merry of heart ends quickly when something that irritates you happens. So he flips out, goes home. Honey, come here. Get the kids. Get everybody. They get the whole household, wife, kids, everybody. He goes home and invites his family and friends to get together for a brag fest. Here's what he says, Esther 5, 11 to 13. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and now he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I'm also invited together with her and the king. And then look at this. Yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I don't see Mordecai, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the, at, the, at the gate. He says, yeah, despite all of that, none of that matters because Mordecai won't bow down to me. Now listen to the hubris, the pride. None of that matters. As long as one guy won't bow down to me. And for that, by the way, he's ready to wipe out an entire race of people. What kind of evil are we dealing with here? We see the pride, we see whatever. Now, thankfully, he has a wife to correct him, like many do. His wife, Zaresh, gets tired of his whining. Basically, he says, Haman, I'm tired of hearing about this. Build a gallows, which we know means basically sticks, 75 feet high, okay, and hang him in the morning. Then, after that's done, you can go enjoy your feast with the king and Esther. Problem solved. Just whack him in the morning. Why is he still alive? Stop whining about it and do something. All right? So, <sighs> sounds good to Haman. Before we get there, pause. God has always exalted the humble and brought down the proud. In fact, when you read a story that egregious in the pride department, it's like biblical foreshadowing. You know that Haman is about to become like that other great war hero, Yertle the Turtle. Yertle the Turtle. You remember that little fable? He's, he wants to stack the other turtles, and he stands on top of them. He asks them to get underneath him so he can be up higher, look out, and be loftier. And then he isn't happy being that high, so he keeps wanting more and more turtles. So he asks them, and the guys on the bottom are like, I can't breathe. Help me out. Too many turtles. And he's like, hey, be quiet. Let's get some more turtles in here. And he keeps going. And eventually they're at one spot where the guy on the bottom is, is about at the end of the rope. And it looks like things have settled in. But then Yertle sees the moon. And the moon is rising up higher than he is. So he says, we need more turtles. 
So right as he calls to get more turtles, the one on the bottom, I think his name's Max or something, burps. And with that, everybody comes down, and he goes from being the king of the pond to the king of the mud, basically. He goes splat. Haman and Yertle are going to be the same guy, except Yertle lives. Because, as my parents used to say, Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Pride goeth, goeth before the fall, as they used to quote in the King James, when we would get too proud. Just remember, pride goeth before the fall. Oh, Haman, Haman, Haman. So, you are not going to believe the amount of coincidences that are about to happen. And it's amazing. What are the chances all of these things in a row happen? Well, let's start, shall we? I mean, Haman, come on, man. If you're living in the penthouse, does it matter if somebody's got the apartment right above yours? Not really. Be thankful. He's not. Play. That night, between the two banquets, before Haman goes and hangs Mordecai and impales him on a stick in the town square, he goes, uh, well, the king is, is up. He can't sleep. So you got Haman, he's left his family bragfest and is on his way to the palace to meet the king. The king can't sleep, so he get, has somebody pull a book off the shelf and read it to him. It happens to be this book called the Book of Memorable Deeds. He happens to open it to a chapter that reads the report of Mordecai letting him know about the coup earlier, telling the king of the plot against him back in chapter 1 and 2. So the king asks his servant, he goes, what, was, what do we ever do for Mordecai? The servant replies, nothing. So at this moment, Haman knocks on the door. Boom, 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 boom. So first of all, what are the chances that that happened to be the book they pull off the shelf and that happened to be the page they turned to? Then Haman, perfect timing, gong, 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 knocks on the door. He's waiting outside to see the king. He wants permission from the king to hang Mordecai. So here's what it says in Esther 6. It says, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you've mentioned him. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Woo! Apples. Lots of apples for him. So Haman takes on the clothes of mourning, sackcloth, ashes, and he goes home to sulk. He goes home. <laughs> He's whining at home. You can just see it. You can just picture being his wife. Mrs. Z, her name is Z, Zeresh, I think it was. King's eunuch then, right then, as he gets home, ready to mope, knock, knock, knock on Haman's door. Hey, it's time for the feast. Haman's like, all right, let me powder my nose, let me get in proper clothes, and then off he goes to the feast. So he goes to the feast, and there's Esther, and there's the king. Things go from bad to worse. 
at the banquet after everybody's eaten. They've had their share and gotten really merry. The king says to Esther, now about that request, my dear, what, what, what was on your mind? And then she tells him of a plot to exterminate all the Jews, including her. The king asks, who dares to do this? Chapter 7, verse 6, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Haman, what? <laughs> it says he's, he's terrified before the king and the, and the queen, and so the king is outraged. In fact, he's so mad, he says, i got to get some air. So he leaves the room, he goes out into the courtyard, he stomps out there. It's probably like this walking around. Meantime, Haman's back inside with Esther. He throws himself down at her feet, saying, Esther, 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 please let me live. Please let me live. Me and Mordecai, that was just a thing. We've worked through it now. It's going to be fine. No hard feelings. Right? I mean, come on. Well, anyways, the king comes back in, sees her, him at her feet, thinks he's assaulting her. So that's a problem. So the king goes, and you come in here and assault the queen? <laughs> the king says, he will dare to assault the queen in my own house. And the servants then come, and it says they cover Haman's face. That is not good. Esther 7. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 75 feet high. What a coincidence. So the king said, hang him on that. So they hang Haman on the gallows he'd prepared for Mordecai. And it says, the wrath of the king abated. So then, if those apples aren't enough, the king takes all of Haman's house. Now that's the part where we kind of like stop the story in Sunday school, probably with good reason. The king gives all of Haman's house to Esther. She tells the king and all the people about her relationship to Mordecai. The king takes off his signet ring, this thing of honor, gives it to Mordecai. And Esther then takes all of it to Haman's house, which had been given to her, and she takes it and gives it to Mordecai. So now he has all Haman's stuff, too. The Jews then are given freedom to annihilate all their opponents who sought to take their lives. And they do. And after that, the king goes back to Esther and says, anything else, my love? And she says, actually, yeah. Haman's got ten sons. Let's hang them too. And so they do. And it came to pass. Now, Esther is no joke. If you're married to Esther, you don't want to forget Valentine's Day. <laughs> you don't know what she might do. But she really does go down as a woman of great courage, a woman who was willing to take where God had placed her, use her influence. In the story of Esther that's there, even though it doesn't mention God's name explicitly, is still revered by the Jews in dramatic fashion. They celebrate a festival every year called Purim. We'll talk about that in a second. But really, the, the meta message of the story of Esther is that God is still undefeated. Still undefeated. Whether he shows up in the burning bush, you can ask Pharaoh. He lost. Haman, he lost. That God, no matter how he works, whether he works in coincidences, in the just so happened of life, or whether he works in those very vivid, overt, powerful ways, 
plagues and thunder and gnats and frogs and the Nile turning to blood or whatever. Okay, whether he's working that way or whether he's working this way, through people he's put in positions of influence to help those who are weak and vulnerable. He's still undefeated. And he'll always be undefeated. See, when we're suffering, sisters and brothers, the big question really isn't, like if we're in the Jews in that moment or Esther in that weird spot or awkward spot or Mordecai, and we're under threat, the big question is not why is this happening to me? It's, it's, it's who am I going to trust? Who am I going to trust? Am I going to trust my friends? Am I going to trust the media? My sense of justice? No, trust in God, not answers, is our greatest ally when we're in a battle. It's about who we're going to trust. It's about asking the question not, how could this happen to me? It's about asking, God, why have you put me here? Show me what to do. You may remember the dice earlier that they rolled. Pure. Dice-ish. You know, we cast lots. It was an ancient form of taking chances or just picking some heads or tails. Pure was the word. P-U-R. To this day, the Jews still celebrate the Feast of Purim. Purim. You read about it in Esther 9 later this afternoon if you'd like. It remembers the deliverance of the Jews from near annihilation. Every year they get out the book of Esther and they read it, called the Megillah. And they read it. And fasting is forbidden, unless it's for medical reasons. No, we fasted then. But we don't have to fast anymore. We're feasting now. And every time that when they're reading through the book, the name of Haman is read, they shout it down. They boo and hiss. His name appears 54 times in the book of Esther. And as they read through it, and the name Haman comes up, they boo and they hiss and they shout it down. And they do it all in the name of God. They celebrate the activity of God because they knew it was him. They knew it was his fingerprints. His fingerprints were all over everything. We Christians, we have a festival that we do. We, we do it on a weekly basis. It's called communion. And that's the place where we acknowledge God's work in our lives and we realize that without him, we would have been in trouble. That if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for his willingness to deliver us out of darkness into the light, we'd have no hope. So we celebrate him. And we celebrate Jesus, the one by whom we experienced that deliverance. And so while theirs back then was a, was a physical annihilation, ours could have been spiritual. And instead, the snare is open. We've escaped, thanks to God. That he has given us the victory in Christ, our deliverer. When you came in, you should have gotten a little bag with bread and cup inside, and I hope uh, you did. If you didn't and you'd like one, you can put your hand in the air. We have some ushers that will bring you one. We do this every week at New Vintage. They've been doing it since uh, the earliest days of the church. We take the bread and the cup. The bread represents the body of Jesus, our deliverer. The cup represents the blood of Jesus, our deliverer. And so, as we do, let me pray for us, and we'll celebrate our escape in Christ.